Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Trisha, it's so good to have you back. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm even willing to be here on a holiday, and and I do want to acknowledge it as a holiday, so I want to give my heartfelt uh, acknowledgement to all of our people that we've lost in the service on on this day as well. Figured I'd start there, right there, right off the bat, doing it today, too. (laughs) Start from it with a light, welcoming (laughs) message. It's a holiday here as well, except we don't have Memorial Day. Uh, doesn't take away my message or my uh, my support to the to the veterans as well. How are you doing, Jim? How I'm are doing you awesome. doing? It's it's a great Memorial Day here. Lots of sun and painting in my in my day, and I've been looking forward all week to talking to the two of you. I did. I got up and I ran this morning, so I'm here. Hence why this hairdo because I it, it, I didn't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> You could rock any kind of hairdo. <laughs> or no hair. Amazing. You know, I dye it. It's, there's grays and I have to dye it. I'm owning that. I said when I went gray, I was going to own it and just go gray. I lied. I lied, people. I lied. Um, but uh, other than that, it works for me. Yeah. So Jim and I took over the gray wearing for you. <laughs> I started going gray from when I was 21 or something like that. So we're rocking the experience yeah. there. Uh, but we're talking about your book that you co-wrote with uh, Diana Larson, Leap Without Blame. Um, what compelled you you two to write this book? Well, it's actually interesting in that um, a, 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 the publisher, the editor at the publisher, had been reaching out to me for a while asking me to write. And I kept kind of deferring it. I was like, no, no, no. I, I'm a speaker. I'm a trainer. I'm not a writer. I'm uh, No, no, no. And um at the end of 2000, like December-ish of 2019, I kind of tried a different tactic to stall. (laughs) And my different tactic was, well, I don't think I want to do it by myself. And she went, oh my gosh, I have another author who doesn't want to do it by herself. Maybe you two know each other. And she said, Diana Larson. I'm like, well, we do know each other. So we got together and, and basically kind of went, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? What are we passionate about? Is there synergy? Is there not? And we just did a number of different working sessions to kind of explore what, what we wanted to kind of say and put out in the world. And it was just instant. Like it worked right off the bat. It was synergy right off the bat, but then also unlocking a lot of things. So we made the decision to go ahead and move forward with this. We knew it was going to be a leadership book. We knew it was going to have some element of the blame factor to it, but it truly merged as we wrote. Like, And and that ended up being probably one of my favorite parts is that it truly is a an emergent from both of us as, as we wrote and as we explored um, what we wanted to help leaders with. Was it challenging to start working with Diane in the sense that, she, for instance, she wrote together with uh, with uh, uh, Debbie before? There has been some work that Diana put out. Did that put some extra pressure on your shoulders? Just a little. 
No, like a ton. Marginal. I still, there is still an element of it. She, she gets so mad at me um, because like, she, I mean, in a lot of ways, we definitely complimented each other with what she was bringing to the table, what I was bringing to the table. It really, really worked. But at the same note, you do have this like, but she's Diana Larson and I am not worthy. Like, like you have this, I almost feel like I got to write a book with Diana Larson. Like I've already won. Like, like, like there's like this feeling of that. Right. <laughs> and, and yet she, I mean, right from the get go was very insistent and, and very honestly doing what we talk about in the book and making sure that I didn't just defer to her and I didn't just kind of do that, but, but yeah, it's an honor. It's, um, it, it added to the pressure of wanting to not hurt her, right, or to hurt others in 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 our industry and stuff. But um, to to be worthy of doing that with her, and and she was always amazing from the get go with it. But I still have surreal, like I can't believe this has happened. Like it, it still feels crazy to me. Uh, I'm curious. Well, that's how we feel about you being here. <laughs> I'm curious, Tricia, I've talked to a number of people who've written books and they all think it's great in now that it's over, but many of them have told me I'll never do it again. So I'm curious what, how you're feeling at this point and what it's done to your, your desire or appetite maybe to write in the future. So I will own that I've eaten my words in many ways. Um, so it took me a long time to get, I mean, I had had conversations with Mike Cohn. I had had conversations with Esther Derby. I was like, what if I do this? And the panic of like, I, I'm such a visible person, but I, and I'm so vulnerable in what I share, but there is a little bit of like, once it's in writing, it feels like a weapon to you. Right. And, and, and I was terrified of people coming out of the woodwork going, who are you? And you suck. And like, just, just absolutely destroying me. And I, I didn't know if I could mentally handle that. And I was worried about it. And, but the entire, like, I honestly think I got so lucky because the experience of writing with Diana was incredible, even though it was during 2020. And, but in some ways that was helpful for me. We sat on zoom for five hours a day. There were times that we're like, we can't write today. I just need to talk about what's going on in the news. And we would just support each other. And so in a time that felt so isolated, I didn't feel incredibly isolated because I was with Diana so often in writing did it take a really long time? Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to write it, to edit it, to, to go through the whole journey um, was really hard. But having had these results, having had this experience, would I do it again? Yes. But I would want to do it with somebody again. Mm. And, and would I do it again right away? No. Yeah. <laughs> But but I think my my identity as a speaker, not a writer, is now finally adjusting. Awesome. Dibs on the first podcast when the next podcast. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's like maybe Sander and I can be like Johnny and David Letterman used to be, and they'd compete for the first A-list thing when the new big Tom Cruise movie dropped, right? We can get Trisha and Diana <laughs> or whoever her co-writer is. First, I, I, I'm curious, Trisha, one quick follow-up, if it's okay, Sandra, is what did you learn about yourself through that, 
through writing the book, if anything? Um, so, so, I mean, I, I, you know, I could build off what I was just talking about, about like trying to identify as a writer and I could build off of like the, I'm a partner with Diana, not just an assistant. Right. But let me try and give you something different. What did I learn? Um, I, I think what I learned about myself. Oh, okay. Um, what I, I think I learned was that all the bad moments of my leadership helped me get where I'm at today. And, and I think a lot of times we hold on to mistakes. We hold on to those moments that we would, we wish we could have, would have, should have done differently. Right. And, and for a long time, those what are what fueled me to learn, to get better, to improve. Right. But I also think they, I held on to them almost as a way to make sure that I was being humble, almost as a way to make sure I was being authentic and honest and like that I'm not perfect. And, you know, I, I don't want to read a book from somebody who thinks they're perfect because that's obnoxious. Right. But I, but I also think I was punishing myself in a lot of ways and not really owning the good parts of what I bring to the table. And, and by downplaying that, I wouldn't ever want somebody a mentoring to downplay that. And yet I was doing it. And so I think that what I've come out of this the most with is kind of really owning what I've done and who I am in terms of my growth as a leader. And, and that is, um, Adam Grant put this in his book uh, called Think Again. He says, confident humility. And I, I think that has probably been the biggest thing that I'll still have moments of like, uh -huh, but but I think for the first time, I'm kind of having some more confident humility going on, which is nice. I think that's one of the, the, the best things to do, right? Or the most authentic things to do is to display that humility to show, listen, I'm not perfect here. Neither are you, but let's be honest. Let's let's keep things real and let's not put on a show to for me to be to to present myself super cocky and confident on things that I might not be able to pull off. Or you know, can you imagine walking into a boardroom and you're all there strutting around like you're you're it? <laughs> That's not gonna work. And looking back at the previous episode that we've done together. I love your humility. I think that is what inspires people out there. And um, I know it inspired me. And it's uh, I cannot imagine anything more powerful to have a leader with your personality and your humility, your openness. And that drives, you know, that, that creates that right environment. Yeah, I, I think it was important as we, we even told stories in the book that weren't like we did it all right. Like here's how to do it perfectly. We we told stories in the book that like, yeah, I have people in my career that hate my guts, like hate me to the core. Some I'm okay with. <laughs> some may have been intentional. <laughs> um, I, there's a, there's some kind of saying, it's like someone will tell you I'm a, you know, bad word and another person will tell you I'm amazing, believe them both because I act accordingly. Right. And so there are people in my career that I've had to fire that absolutely hate me. I've had people in my career that I've had to fire that still send me a Christmas card. So it's very weird. Right. But I, I, but I, 
I have made mistakes in my in my time and and there are people that would have a very different opinion if you were to ask them about me and and they're entitled to that opinion in that moment in that time and and I may agree with it I may not agree with it but but I hope that it's helped me learn. And and that's all you can really do at times, especially when you have that weight and that pressure and you're responsible for, for a customer and for an organization and for the team and for yourself. Um, if you try and be perfect, you're already going to lose. Yeah. What's the best mistake you ever made? The best mistake I ever made. Well, I don't know if I called it a mistake, but everybody else did was any time I took parallel or what people perceived as reduced roles, like down the ladder positions. Like I've done that multiple times where people are like, you're walking away from an executive position and you're just going to go and do that. Like, why would you do that? I was like, because that's the challenge I want. Like I like, and, and I've had a lot of people tell me how dumb that is, how, what big a mistake it is, or that's just a lateral move. And why are you going to do that? And every time I've ever done something that that's been called out and that career ladder nonsense um, has always opened doors for me every single time. Question around that, because that, that really resonates with me on many levels. When you did that, was I'm assuming, but please tell us it, it was after a lot of thought. You didn't do that impulsively, right? No. Yeah, I'm, it's intentional, right. absolutely. Wouldn't always say I put as much thought as I should have probably mm. at times, <laughs> but it was definitely intentional. Um, like me moving and and walking away from an executive position at a company I adored, a team that I loved. I I mean, I still interact with many people. I'll still highlight it was I wanted to live in Colorado and it, my kids were getting to an age where it was now or never. And, and what was that going to mean? And, and what do I need to do? So I, I, I will say that sometimes it seems to others that they've told me that it's more impulsive than I think it is, but it's always very intentional. Um, what position am I going to look for? What challenge am I going to get? What am I going to do from, from, from that um, has always been, more of my focus than what my title was or what my pay was going to be. Isn't it funny that apparently there is this unoutspoken expectation that career-wise only things go up. Yes. Like you should go up in the ladder. You cannot move lateral. You cannot move down in the hierarchy. You cannot move to any kind of position or stay in the same position. It's always, no, you got to go up. Like there's no other way. Well, Listen, if you're happy in the position that you're at, why not? And I wouldn't I couldn't have even told you the last three jobs that I've had that I would have ever even said I would have wanted to do that. I would have never told you I was gonna write a book. I would have never told right. Like so and a lot of times I think when we get so focused on title chasing, unfortunately, we miss out on opportunities. We miss out on things that are right there in front of us because we do play into this like up thing that is all just a narrative that doesn't um actually work in today's society anyways with switching jobs and things. I And I say all that and I want to acknowledge it because somebody once did a gut punch to me and I'm grateful for is I said it, I, I said title chasing and, and the person looked at me and it goes, must be nice to say from your executive title. And I went, oh yeah, that's okay. So, so I, I, fair enough, right? Like 
that I have had positions on a board of directors. I have been, I have done many different roles in different situations that does make it easier for me to not covet, right? Like a role or a a thing. And I, and I don't have any qualms of people wanting a set of goal along those things. I just, I'm always careful of, does it align to the challenges you want in that moment? If you're just going after the title and you don't even want that job, you're going to be miserable. And that's the thing that I, I see so many times that I, it just makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting remark that Amy now brings in. Uh, She says, but also as a woman, we often hear that we need to chase titles in order to be competitive. What's your experience? Um, I wouldn't say just titles. I would say part of our identity of just what we bring to the table. Like I still acknowledge that I'm a computer science major. I grad, my kid is going to college now. Like I should stop talking about my college degree. (laughs) Like, And yet I will still (laughs) highlight it because there's an element of me as a woman in tech that is like, no, no, I have earned my spot here and I I have that background. I, you may not want me coding anymore, but I still get excited when I see a null pointer exception. Um, and um, so I, I don't even think it's just titles. I think there's a little bit of just like our accomplishments that we 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 have to emphasize a little bit more f- to help with that credibility. I had this happen in a in a work setting where I was asking a female colleague, why are you doing this? I don't understand why that's necessary. I would never do that. And she said, Jim, you don't understand. If I didn't have this title and didn't get this promotion, people won't accept my meeting invites. They won't respond to me in a meeting. They won't email me back a question from a male colleague at the same job title. And that really hit home for me. Unfortunately, in that case, it led to a number of, of, I would say, negative things uh, for everyone involved, which was this constant desire to climb a ladder so that you could help. And this person that I'm thinking of had the best of intentions. And it, it just made me sad to think that she had to achieve a certain title to help and do what she was really passionate about because she already had all the merits. She already had all the capabilities. And yeah, it's, I I think many of us probably have that experience, but it took, I mean, this was only eight years ago where I, I, it really hit home to me. And a second kind of example of this is I was dating somebody just very early, just a couple dates. And they kept talking as we were getting to know each other about their education. And I said, you know, I got to stop you and ask, we're, we're here having drinks and I, I can tell you're intelligent. I, you don't need to prove it to me. Is this a carryover from your work day? And she said, oh yeah, a- absolutely. Like, I have to have more degrees and higher degrees and from the right schools because of this, this, and this. And she told me a bunch of stories that just made me get it. And I think titles are one of those things. They matter to some people. They don't matter to others. And we all might have to chase the title, like you say, because we don't know what any audience is going to value. And we would probably all be better if they would value us as an individual and based on our merit and our capabilities. But sadly... I don't think that's ever been the but, case. And, and, 
And we're talking as a woman, but like, honestly, there's lots of underrepresented dynamics that face these mm-hmm. same challenges in, in different ways and sometimes compounded um, and, and what that means. And it's, it's accumulated. Uh, yeah. Well, you'll also, and then there's the other dynamic where, you know, I had to balance myself to stop saying, well, just, you know, like I would throw the just word in because I didn't want to seem too bossy or, or too aggressive as a female. Um, I, I think I've gotten as a, as a, as I've gotten further along and like owning the value that I bring, I, 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 I know this is going to be shocking. I'm a little sarcastic. I know. Surprise, surprise. And, uh, and, Who and, and just completely like, I'm going to call it, but I've had so many things happen in my career that people get astounded by. And, and, and I'm like, Oh really? That, that like, that seems like it happens every, like I, one a, a statement I made not too long ago that shocked some people that I just, I was like, that's just been normal. I have never been promoted in my entire career. Now, granted, I've been independent now for a while. So, it, but in my early career, in 20 years plus years, I had never gotten a promotion and not gotten heard about directly or indirectly a gossip or rumor that I slept with somebody, that I did something nefariously, that I like that there was some dynamic associated to my promotion. Not once. Mm. In my entire career. It's odd how much and, of a dick people can be. And But like it almost gets to the point like now I kind of joke and I'm like, ooh, I got the Agile Conference 2017 chair. Who did I sleep with? Like, and I like I and I've been with my husband for 24 years. Right. And and but like it's almost I just almost expect it now. And I, I just wait for it. And sure enough. And and I don't know if it is because I have something on my forehead that says, please say something rude and inappropriate to my face. Um, but but people will come up and they're like, oh, well, who were you in with that? You got this position over X, Y and Z. I was like, um, or maybe that I've been volunteering at this conference and attending since 2006. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um but but it's so kind of common that I do think a lot of underrepresented and, and I can speak for myself as a female in tech is we do have to assert ourselves in different ways and in different dynamics and and then deal with the microaggressions, deal with the the crappiness of of people. And and that's probably one of my favorite things that's happened in the last couple of years is where people are just saying enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I, I like the story in your in the book about the token female. And I thought that was interesting as an example of a microaggression and, and things. Uh, we have a question in the chat from one of our longtime listeners and callers, Marge, um, says, Trisha, have you come across mansplaining a lot? And if so, how do you react to that? Um, of course, uh, <laughs> daily, uh, you know, I I think I don't know. Mansplaining doesn't really trigger me as much as I think it does some other people, and I and I can understand why um, it's it's triggering for people. For me, I, I usually have a compassionate dynamic of what are they trying to prove, not necessarily what are they thinking about me, and so I I think because I have this constant like compassion and curiosity and trying to help other people grow. It helps me to see the mansplaining as not insulting to me, almost more like, oh, 
you you've got some issues, right? Like, and, and that's probably not any more healthy, you know, in any kind of reaction. I'm not sure I'm recommending this reaction to anybody else, right? It's got its own set of problems. But but because of that, I, I have a little less on that front of it. So um, usually um, if I get somebody that's really bad about it, like I had a guy once that kept trying to tell me what asynchronous messaging meant. And I, and and he didn't understand I had a background in computer science. He didn't understand that I had been coding integration stuff for years. And I was like, mm, and and I will own, I'm not proud of it. I will own that I've put people in their space a little bit. Sometimes when I get too bad of the mansplaining, I will like, I will check you a little bit and 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 kind of make it clear that you're saying something that is obvious to me. Um I try not to do that because at the end of the day, I want people engaged. And and if I'm checking somebody, I'm not actually actively engaging them. But I lose my I lose my cool every so often myself, and and I do it. Yeah, but it's coming back to that humility. Sometimes people need to be put in their yeah, place. Yeah, it's and not need my to be go-to, but I I'm not going to lie that I have I've never done it. <laughs> I I will I will have done it. But usually I try, even when I'm doing it, it's it's like a conflict dynamic of why are you doing that and what is happening? And this is what the impact is for me. So I, I really, really try. Part, and that was why it was so important for us to put the microaggressions in the, in the book, because I do think most microaggressions and mansplaining is often a microaggression in, in most of its forms is... You know, there is a good intent usually behind it. It's just crappy impact and impact matters more, but there usually is a good intent. And and I have found that I can work with people better when when I'm honoring their good intent and getting them to feel the impact than trying to have a battle about their intent. As a man who has positively mansplained in the past, accidentally, uh, and it's something I do work on and I've been called on it, I think... My my guess is, at least for me, and I'm not speaking or excusing anybody else's, it comes from an assumption. And one of the things my coach and mentor works with me about is, Jim, you're assuming again. And I will have entire conversations in my head, and I'm doing all the voices. He's like, you have your opinion, and you are filling in their opinion, their response, and then you're responding to that, and you're doing this. And I th- I wonder if you would... When you've seen mansplaining, has it been because they've made some sort of an assumption about you or just about an underrepresented group in general? I don't know if I've gotten the assumption part as much. Usually for me, it always seems to be more rooted in I'm trying to be efficient and getting to the final answer and I'm bulldozing my way through Mm. it. And I think I'm being efficient by explaining these things that you honestly didn't need that part, but I'm thinking I'm being efficient because you could. So there probably is an assumption in there, like, right. But I, I, I tend to find it's a little bit more in my circles, more rooted in efficiency concerns than, than assumptions of my talents or abilities. But that also is who I'm surrounded with now. Right. right? I I'm around people that know my talents and my, my, my abilities and stuff. So I think I have less of that issue. And also people are afraid of me. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> because I, I have no problems with conflict. So if you do do something that's insulting or impactful to me, 
chances are I'm, I'm calling it out. And so there is an element of people will check their assumptions a little bit faster with me now. I get it more indirectly with like that token female, like, oh, is she the token female on the, you know, is, is she the, you know, she only got the conference chair because she is a female and, and all these things. I'll, I'll get, I'll get that stuff, but that's usually more indirect than direct. Yeah. So there's a, there's a question coming on the uh, Master Agility mural board that I want to get into, but I'm very curious as well to see if this like these situations are going to change just because of the fact that you wrote a book and how that's going to impact the way that you're being perceived or um, the dynamics in the organization. So maybe let's let's keep that for a future episode and let's let's reflect back on that. Uh, but the question here what is, what are there. the key? You got another secondary invite right there. I see it. I like it. I like it. Good job. <laughs> it was suave, wasn't it? It was smooth. It was smooth. <laughs> but the question is, what are the key elements that make conflict productive instead of personal? And there's a there's a follow up question on this. Uh, but let's touch this first. What are the key elements that make conflict productive rather than Personal. So, I, so I'm going to challenge the question right off the bat a little bit, and I do it with love. But I'm personal always. So this whole thing about like it's business, it's not personal. You're quoting a fictional movie about the mob. Stop it. We're human beings. We're personal. So like, you, I'm not scary when I'm personal. I'm scary when I stop speaking because that means I can no longer trust from here to here. So you should run. If I've stopped engaging, run. Like, like, like that is when I'm scary. And so I'm always really careful with the personal element because I think a lot of times, and this can go back to the underrepresented, right? Is if I'm passionate and I'm loud, that doesn't mean it's unhealthy. That means that for me, I, that's I'm totally engaged. I I'm I'm there. I think where it it where we keep conflict healthy is when it's a problem that needs to be solved. It doesn't mean that everybody engages in the same way. Now, there's differences between I can be passionate and not be calling you personal or horrible names, right? Like now, that's that for me that flies into drama. That's not personal. That's not conflict. That's that's escalating in ways that is is inappropriate right but me being slightly animated or loud is not necessarily unhealthy it's me totally engaged i would rather have that than somebody who stops speaking or walks out of a room and doesn't attend anymore so i really we what we wrote in the book and and highlighting is really trying to keep conflicts at just problems to solve if we're going to talk about the fact that diversity brings wisdom of the crowd and that's the beautiful part of it then we can't expect that we're all going to agree or we're just going to have group think so if we can keep conflict as, ooh, there's conflict, yes, that's just a problem to solve, then we're in a good spot. It's when we start taking conflict and escalating it into to levels of like crusades and I must win at all costs. And, and that's when we're getting into places where it then that personal becomes attacking in ways that are unhealthy and dramatic kinds of situations. Yeah, continuing on that, the, the question is, uh, the follow-up question is how to make sure that cultural differences do not spoil it. But also, I can imagine that if you're going to be loud in there, uh, more up the chain, like in the board of directors kind of setting, I can imagine that people are loud kind of by nature. But in a more group kind of setting, uh, in, in team setting, people might be completely 
overwhelmed by dominant characters, by loud characters. What do you think about well, that? The, and that's part of one of the things that we talked about in terms of building collaborative connections. Like, how do we help honor? We all have family members that are different from us and we know how to deal with them, right? Like we all have, and yet somehow in the workplace, we stop acting like everybody's supposed to be robots and act exactly the same. And that's just craziness. But on the same note, I need to recognize that I can be very intimidating people. I can be very overwhelming to people. I can be very scary to people because I, 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 you know, shout it out. I'm not afraid of those things. And so in order to do that, I then go, okay, well, what other things do I need to create a space? Well, this person really needs to think through things. Okay. I'm going to send them questions in advance, like, and, and really taking the time to build those connections with your teammates of what their needs are and not just your needs. Um, I hate Slack. I hate Slack. I hate Slack. Slack can just burn, burn, Slack burn because it's asynchronous <laughs> and it's just not how my brain works. Like I want to engage in the conversation. I, I like, I love doing these kinds of things. And so by the time I'm reading Slack, I, I just, it, it reads just as a status report to me and it's not a conversation for me. And, but I know that I have colleagues that really, really like the processing time. And so we have to find balances of how does this work for what I need versus they need. And we're openly talking about that. We're not pretending that it's just going to magically be okay. Like my scariest team I ever got assigned to once was they're like, they have no conflict ever. And I was like, because they don't speak to each other. Like this is not, <laughs> that's not healthy. And, and it, to respect cultural differences, um, regional difference, like uh, under any kind of intersectionality difference, right. Is to, to take the time to get to know somebody, to take the time to want to adjust some of your behavior to better create a better space for the whole. And, and, especially in the Zoom world, we just kind of keep disconnecting more and then being surprised that unhealthy conflict's happening. Listen, if, if there are any teams that don't have any conflict, I'm freaked the F out. Something's off. Yeah. How do you start start gauging there? Maybe a question to you as well, Jim, from a coaching perspective. Uh, what kind of techniques do you guys apply? To, let's see what's under the hood here. Maybe some emotional debt. Right. I, I, one of the things I just dropped in the chat for the audience, and, and just to to make the point that I think Trisha is referring to is problem to solve is like a level one conflict. And this comes back 30, 40 years to a conflict model. Is is that the one you were referencing, Trisha? So we built on, we modified it. We built on that one. Um, it, that was also the one that Lisa Adkins built mm -hmm. on um, and put in agile coaching. And then we built on it further and adapted it because we wanted to talk about that passion part a little bit. And so we added one extra layer. Gotcha. And by all means for the audience, please look at all of them. The one in the book, I listened to your book, Trisha, um, recently, so I didn't get the visual, but I could see the correlation with Lisa's model and, and other ones I've seen. And I think Sander, the way I would answer your question is I first think about what level is this conflict in? And if it's sufficiently high, my first job is to deescalate or at least make people aware, take a break. Like uh, in the book, you told multiple stories about the facilitator taking a lunch break or a break for to just walk around the conference center. I, I did that in the last kind of big leadership group I facilitated too. 
And it gives the facilitator a lot of options. You can pull someone aside. You can talk to your co-facilitator. You can sense and respond. You can do a lot of different things. So, yeah. And some of it is just giving people space, right? The oxygen starts moving. They're moving for a second. Their adrenaline you know, they're like, as, as I forget what, who coined this, like they flip their lid, like their thinking brain is off. And so by walking and taking a minute, they can get back to a logical, like their adrenaline relaxes a little bit. With yeah. It. W- one thing that I, so the day before I listened to your book, Tricia, I listened to another podcast that I've been listening to for years and they talked about an idea that I haven't fully processed yet, but it seems like this could apply is When you are having an interaction with a group of people, and this was typically in the sense of a group of people who meet regularly, not like a one-off, to start by asking the open question to each person or to the group, does anybody have something on their list that they need to clear? And they called this list clearing, and it was, if since the last time Sandra and I talked, I've built up some sort of frustration, maybe he hasn't responded to something that I'm waiting on, or maybe something to start by being to say, is there anything you need to get off your chest? And what that does is maybe we don't resolve it. And then they talked about this idea of ventilation and how venting is helpful. And if nothing else, maybe it would let the group approach that current interaction by having said the thing that's bothering them so they can get their brain focused around maybe whatever the point of that interaction is. Yeah. Is there anything that you need to get off your chest, Jim? Did I oh, uh, I mean, we'll do the airing of the grievances soon. I mean, the list is too long for the for the rest of this. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. No, no, not at all. We'll make a mural board for that. Well, so I, I, I have mixed emotions on it. And and I think where my mixed emotions come from, if you are not skilled in helping to reestablish psychological safety after a ventilation or after a clearing, you could actually be creating more damage than helping. And so I think a lot of people will say things like, well, it's, it's, it's safe. Well, that's like labeling people a team. It doesn't make it so, right? And and so if you're not experienced in really understanding how to create psychological safety, how to re like reestablish it as people f- experience a fairness issue when somebody vents something, as somebody experiences a, a trust issue, as as you know, then you could be setting a tone that's going to make it really hard for them to collaborate going forward. So I I see the benefits of the person getting it off their chest when it's like, oh, I've got this issue, like kind of like a parking lot concept. Mm -hmm. But if it's any kind of clearing of grievances where it's connective based, if you don't know how to handle the psychological safety things, you could be actually making setting the tone of your opening to be very difficult for them to move forward. Right. That's Great reflection. And it's very recent for me. And I could see a hundred ways it could go poorly. It was just something interesting that I'm going to think about. And I think it, it might be right for some groups and in, in interactions and could be completely wrong and harmful for others. Well, and I think it also just depends on how you position mm-hmm. it, right? It's like what it, what challenges are forming to the team versus what do you have to clear? What frustrations do you have about other people, right? Like just depending on how you're positioning it can have different dynamics with that too. Now that said, I whether it's an opening or not, never having those discussions is a problem. Mm. Um, and and so I 100% get on board with like, 
look, if you're faking it, you're not going to collaborate well, which means we're not going to get the full benefit. So let's not, I, I have no interest in faking relationships in, in, in the workplace. So, so I am all for getting into those conversations. I'm just cautious sometimes about it being the opening if you're not a really skilled facilitator. Right. And that kind of digs on to a different question that we had in the mural is what are the best ways to create trust? Do you think? I mean, from my scrum and dork perspective, I would definitely say definitely trust falls. No, just kidding. <laughs> do the trust falls. Um, yeah. And then please record them. <laughs> somebody said that they do trust runs where you run as fast as you can at somebody. I was like, oh my gosh, just stop, stop. Um, I, 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 now I'm going to sound. I'm going to sound cranky after this, um, but I can't stand the whole like get to know each other really quick questions that because they're not trust building questions for me. So like they'll do things like fast friends, like if you could have dinner with anybody anywhere, who would it be? And somehow like our answers that are going to build trust in the team. No, it doesn't. Like it, like I don't care what your favorite color is. Like I don't care. And, and, and in fact, I get mocked for telling my favorite movie. So I don't want to tell anybody my favorite movie anymore. Right. So, but even if you go down the path of like, well, we're getting to know each other and it's fun. Here's the problem. Again, people are human and you don't know what they're bringing to the table. And so your innocent favorite question that you have of like, who would you have lunch with or dinner with dead or alive? Now, I know you want me to answer something like Tina Turner. Like, I know you want me to say, you know, Barack Obama or something, right? Like, I know you want the fun answer, but I'm going to give you an answer that's going to kill the vibe in the room very, very fast. So now my choice is, do I say my son that passed away or give you the fake answer that you want? Mm. And in either case, I'm now left sitting the rest of the day going, I didn't honor my son. or did I make everybody else comfortable? Like, because I, if I invoke my dad's son, I am killing the vibe of the fun in the room, like instantly. Now I'm okay with it. My son passed away 19 years ago. I, I talk about him. I, I'm okay to talk about him. I, I've incorporated him into my life. But like, that doesn't mean everybody else in the room is going to be comfortable. But now I actually feel less trust because depending on how all of you react to that, I don't know if I'm building any connections with everybody. So these games of these fast friends can be really detrimental like to people. You don't know who's had losses or challenges, infertility issues. Like there's just so many things people go through that they're landmines for, for people with things. So for me, I focus on building trust in teams by having them work collaboratively together. When you collaborate together, when you're having engagements, when you're getting things done, when you're building towards a shared purpose and a goal, like think about it. The teams that you were in the trenches with, where you were like, like in the trenches trying to get it out the door, you, there's a bond there. You can't like it's lasting. I just saw somebody that I hadn't worked with in 15 years and we're like, oh, my God, do you remember? Like it's, it is a trust <laughs> and a bond because you're in it together. And I for me. Yes, then people will learn about my son. People will learn about my favorite movie. I, but that's more fluent and 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 normal versus forced fun. And and yeah, so for me, building trust is just doing well. the work collaboratively together. Like that's that's it. There's a big difference between trust 
and between fun. And those team, the, the, those two things seem to be combined or connected in many people's expectations. Like, oh, we're, we, we get along so well, we trust each other completely. No, that's not the thing. I need to know you got my back with everything and anything. I don't need to like you specifically, but I do need to know if shit's going down, you've got my back. Are you going to be in it with me? And now I'm super curious what your favorite movie is. (laughs) I don't have a favorite color. My daughter, much to my daughter, 16 year old daughter's dismay because she asks everybody that question and she gets mad at me when I make that joke. Um, But uh, my, my favorite movie is a total horrible, sappy friendship chick flick beaches with Bette Midler and, and it's old and, and, and it, I mean, it's not a, it's sad. It's a sad, sad movie, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's my movie. So Trisha, what makes you like it? What makes me like it? Um, it's a friendship movie and, and kind of standard to just what you just highlighted. Um, they, it's, it's a movie. My guess is you've never seen beaches. Um, it's a movie, um, with two friends that met as kids, which I met my best friend at 10 years old and they stayed connected pen pals or different ways. And they deal with conflicts up and downs in their journeys and their life moments and happiness and sad moments and breaking up. And, and in the end, they still come back together for each other. And one of them gets cancer and the other one is helps raise her kid. And, and, and there is just the, it's where the, the song wind beneath your wings that's from that soundtrack. And for me, it's, it is that trust and loyalty and, and just truly being connected with people and in ways that doesn't always look the same from day to day, but yet is a bond that is forever. And for me, that's just, I don't know, everything. Is it that really sorry Jim for for continuing riffing a little bit on this but I see like the, the connection itself like is this your favorite movie because it's so relatable to your personal life um I think it's re- it's related well my best friend and I have not had cancer and neither of us are dead so no it's not relatable yet <laughs> but maybe it's relatable in in the sense that that's uh, like in those moments of sadness, like when my son did pass away, she was the one who crawled in my hospital bed with me and, you know, she's been there. And, and so there is a dynamic for me of just that true, like whether it's high highs or low lows, I'm there. And, and I, I, I lead with that mindset of like you, if I invest in you, you can't get rid of me. It's obnoxious. Like, like it's obnoxious, but I, I do love that dynamic of, it doesn't always have to be perfect. It doesn't always have to look the same every day, but yet when push comes to shove, we're there. Coming back to the whole trust topic, why being, why you get so passionate about that. Yep. Thank you for your willingness to share such a, such a, vulnerable and personal so thing. trisha i i gotta admit i'm a little triggered by this like it, in a in a fun way i know the audience can't see my face but i just think of the triggered memes right um is your your i i think what i'm hearing is that getting a group of people to work together towards a common goal is a better way of creating trust than maybe a surface level icebreaker like if you could be any fruit what would it be or right yeah, that's okay. guaranteed way to make me not come to the next meeting if you talk make me just talk about fruit at the start okay. of the meeting now so here's my here's my <laughs> slightly challenging question to that okay 
if the team is used to working together and moderately healthy, have you seen where going personal and getting people to creating a way and an environment, even if it's a temporary environment, like you might only have two hours with them or you might have two years to make it where people get to know each other on a more personal level. Can that work? Is there, how, how would an audience oh. member know when that's a better answer than like a marshmallow challenge type thing or. Yeah. I mean, I am not, let me be clear. I have no boundaries of business and personal. I know that's shocking, <laughs> but like I have no boundaries. Right. And so I'm not saying you can't be personal or you don't go into those conversations in the workplace. In fact, that was part of the thing I called out in the book was like, I did draw a line of like microaggressions and races that like I, these were taboo topics you don't have in the workplace. And I'm totally anti that now. Right. Like, and I've switched my thing. I just don't like the surface fake mm. when you're not actually putting in the trust. Right. Now, if a team gets to a place where they're able to do those things and they, they're recommending and they want to challenge themselves, like I'm all for that, but I've seen it go down the rails one too many times, like good intent with two truths and a lie. And it just goes off the rails really, really poorly because it's surface. Mm -hmm. And so if you're surface trying to get personal, you're not getting personal either. If it's surface, we're not getting personal anyway. Right. And why would you start off a meeting talking about your favorite vacation spot? Because now everybody's on their vacation spot and they don't want to talk about whatever you're going to talk about anyway. Great point. I Half of the people right now are still thinking of their favorite movie. They stopped listening to me. Like that's that's the other thing is, is so many times our icebreakers are actually distracting people instead of actually engaging them together. I completely agree with that. Join us again next week for part two of this episode. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button. Share it with friends and colleagues sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.